0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Aha! Moments. Lucian Freud. Winslow Homer. And Ken's making up for lost time, London Book Hall.
1: All I want for weirdness is my... T- uh, don't you mean Christmas? No, I mean weirdness. All I want for weirdness is Weird Little Elf from Atlas Games.
0: Ah, oh, yes, the little bitty holiday game that's a little
1: bit weird. This fast and easy family party game is the perfect not boring activity for your next holiday gathering.
0: Santa's elves are working hard to finish all the toys in Santa's workshop. But something isn't right. The elves are acting very strangely. Rumor has it that a terrible imp has snuck into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas.
1: But the elves can be mischievous too, and Santa's having trouble telling who's who. So he gathers all the elves around and asks them one... Simple question. So it's
0: playable with practically any group, any size, any age. It's a light
1: social deduction game where the imp is a hidden role that non-gamers and even young kids can handle with funny physical tells like scratch your nose and cross your eyes.
0: It's an acute palm-sized box that looks like a gift-wrapped present. It's perfect as a stocking stuffer.
1: Get your holiday shopping done early. Give one to everyone in your family and buy enough for all your
0: coworkers, teachers, and daycare staff. Order one for each of your gamer friends. You know they don't already own it. And keep one for yourself. The rattle of dice,
1: the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But as we enter the friendly confines of the gaming hut, the shag carpet under our feet, the table in the middle, the graph paper disarranged on it, but wait a minute, that's not a can of the GM's friend Mountain Dew, that's caffeine-free Mountain Dew. What What's going on, Robin? I've had an aha moment, as referenced by beloved Patreon backer Keelan Ohay, who notes that often in investigative media, like police procedurals, the perpetrator will be met early on and display a behavior that works as an aha moment for the audience when the big reveal happens, like walking with a limp because the victim cut his leg or wearing gloves to hide where the dye pack exploded on his skin during the bank robbery. How would you go about hiding these often visual details In a game like Mutant City Blues, without giving the secret away completely, but respecting the player character's competence, Robin.
0: So this is a a bit of a toughie, but it absolutely is a staple of the genre. And I guess the foremost exponent of that would be Holmes, right? Where the person comes and sits down in front of him and he figures out everything about them based on their current physical manner. and there's lots of different genres. There's also the aha moment montage that occurs as the Mm -hmm. character pieces everything together. We've seen that from everybody from doctor, the doctor to house. Mm -hmm. And the trick is that it has to be something that you sort of throw away at the beginning, because in the fictional sources, you want the audience to, after the fact, realize that you showed it to them without noticing it at the time. And so often, for example, there'll be like a quick shot or a little detail or whatever, but you're not given enough to put it together. You're not supposed to have a pre-aha, as it were. So the idea, I guess, is to kind of throw it away when you initially describe it. And this is easy to do since your description is just sort of verbal and uh, there's often a lot going on in a a GM's description and the players aren't necessarily taking it all in. Uh, But then are you hitting it Hard enough for them to actually go aha later on?
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems to be that there has to be more than one thing you mention about the, let's leave it as the perpetrator for now, to provide an aha. So, you have the guy, uh, they show up, and the only thing you say is that they're limping, then player characters, players, indeed, will fixate on that. So it has to be, he walks with a limp, he's got a beard, he's unrelenting, you know, uh, effusively friendly guy. Whatever the thing is, you just have to bury that in a bunch of details and ideally maybe a little role-playing moment so that the aha doesn't immediately pre-ha, as you say. And then the trouble with this as opposed to in a visual medium is that in a visual medium, they do the flashback. They, you know, remember, oh, look at that, it's in sepia, this must be important now. Or they, you know, piece it all together and realize that was, in fact, Kaiser Soze they were talking to the whole time. But a single mentioned detail, like the guy limps, is maybe going to get lost in the shuffle, and the players may have forgotten about it. There is not going to be a flashback machine. You can maybe say he's limping every time they meet him, but A, that seems a little forced. And B, if it's just from a, you know, a, a leg cut at the time, he's, he may have healed back, you know, he may have, you know, bound up the injury and, and, uh, you know, uh, gotten better. And so he's not limping anymore. And you need to figure out some way to recall a detail that may have only been salient at the meeting point uh, in play and that. Might be as unsubtly as, you know, when the players are stuck, the GM reminds them of all the clues that they have, and that's one of them, or it ideally will be a a, a moment where the player notices something and they say, oh, the, the, the killer must have been stabbed during this affray uh, with my blood spatter evidence uh, ability. I, I noticed that, you know, this is different blood, whatever, and... Then you, the GM, can maybe even lead a little bit and say, well, then that means the killer would have gotten away with a severe injury, uh, probably for the position of the blood in, in a leg. Have you met anyone who might have limped? And then that might be the one that passes it to the player. I mean, in, in the golden age of mystery, the fiction, the, the prose mysteries, you got that detail once and it's never referred to again. And it is up to you to make your own aha moment. But again, the commitment between a single reader of a mystery novel is not the same form, regardless of it's the same type, as the commitment of of an even truly committed role player to a a session, right?
0: Right. And conversely, I think there are certain details that players will jump on that you wouldn't have the same equivalent. You know, in a TV show, you can have the actor slightly limp, but if you say limp, they're going to focus on that no matter what the other 11 things you say are. And also wearing gloves. So one of the tricks of this is going to have to be you're going to have to come up with things that do not immediately scream genre trope in terms of what these things are, because there are, you know, details you can't easily just drop and expect the players to register without realizing their significance. It's a very tricky one. And so in Gumshoe, we do cover this concept with a thing called pipe clues, where There's one bit of information that you acquire early on, and then later on it becomes evident why that's important and combines with a second clue. So I think the trick there is to sort of give up on the idea that you are kind of burying the clue at the beginning, but rather that the full significance of the clue isn't immediately available when you get part one of it. So you can say, oh, well, you know, he was walking with a limp. But your significance of why they were walking with the limp happens later. So you know about the limp, and then later you discover that the victim cut him. And then you go, oh, that was why the limp was. And so it's not so much you're trying to bury the first one. It's that it doesn't fully come into significance until you get that second piece of information.
1: Yeah, it's, it's more about if we're sticking with the limp, you see the limp, then you see the blood spatter evidence that indicates the killer was stabbed, was stabbed in the leg. And that's when you put it together. You don't begin with the crime scene. uh Well, looking at the blood spatter evidence, it seems like the killer was stabbed in the leg. Just be on the lookout for any limpers, and we've got ourselves the killer. I mean, they even in a, a regular police procedural, they might not do that because they can have you know the crime scene guy is maybe not our hero, the uh, the homicide cop, and he comes back and he says, "What do you got for me on this crime scene?" And the crime scene guy says, "Well." Apparently the killer was stabbed in the leg and that's when the, um, our protagonist, you know, has the aha moment and puts it together. So it's really about just ordering the clues as you present them almost more than making sure that they're particularly, you know, non genre-y or subtle or anything else. It's really about positioning them in the narrative. And again, the narrative is different in a game than it is in a TV show because you have to hope that the players will put it together. And if they don't, then you as the GM do have to do the, you know, uh, as a seasoned investigator, you your eyes light on the uh, bulletin board where you've been keeping all of the clues you've found. Oh, that's interesting. That guy's holding a a, a cane. Maybe he was limping, et cetera. And you go on from there.
0: Right. And so likewise, if they're wearing gloves to hide the die pack, you introduce the gloves in scene A and you reveal that there's a die pack in scene B. The next thing, though, is what to do if you've given the players the material for the aha moment, and then they don't piece it together. They don't aha. Uh-huh. So, right. And so uh, in the series of adventures that I'm currently writing for the Yellow King uh, role-playing game Casilda song, there are often points where I say, give the players time to put this together, and then if they don't, cite the investigative ability that they used to do that with. Because that lets them feel super smart, if they do figure it out on their own without referencing their abilities. But you don't want the situation, again, where you're stopping the story cold because the players aren't putting it together. And there are all sorts of reasons why they might not be. And often as a GM, you're quite surprised at the fact that they don't put together what you think are obvious clues, just as sometimes you're surprised at how they immediately leap three steps to an answer. And so, again, you have to do that in a way that doesn't make them feel dumb for missing it. But reminds them how smart the characters are. And so, you know, as the seasoned investigator, as soon as you hear the word die pack, you think back to an earlier detail dot, dot, dot. You give the players another time to go, oh, yeah, the gloves, gloves. And if they don't, again, you know, supply it you know the gloves at that point it's you know maybe a little hard to rescue the full feeling of being a genius but maybe what you can do there is you know describe the flashback right that you, you your memory flashes back to the scene and you see it in sepia of course because it's that's very important and you see the gloves that he's wearing and you know again you know do your best to make them feel brilliant at least on the character level if not on the player character level as they're you know, missing a deduction. And and that, my friends, is why Gumshoe doesn't entirely rely on deduction, because it's very difficult, especially in a, you know, essentially purely verbal medium.
1: I feel like this is almost a whole different discussion, a different segment, when we compare Gumshoe, which is an investigative game, an investigative engine, with people's assumptions about the mystery genre or the, the act of deduction. And that, A lot of people, when they say, how do I run a mystery? They assume they have to be running a Sherlock Holmes style mystery where, you know, it it is supposedly pure deduction and, uh, oh, it turns out you're not doing that. There's more to an investigation than deduction and there's more to running the game than you know, ideally than a single aha clue. You know, if right,
0: because deduction is so hard to pull off, I would say that even in something that's supposed to be deductive, mm-hmm. I would limit the number of deduction moments and and do limit them.
1: Right. And, and and in fairness, if you read the actual Sherlock Holmes stories for all the the praise of pure deduction, Holmes does a lot, a lot, a lot of induction and breaking down alibis and regular old investigation. That the notion that um you're sort of racionating the clue out of the a uh, mass of information is uh, is is not borne out either in the media or I think in you know at the table. Right.
0: So in *Mutant City Blues*, the thing to do is to just make sure that there's clues that connect between scenes, and that I think is basically your equivalent of deduction in this medium. So that the the scene where they find the webbing material and they pull up the Quade diagram, they see it's well, that's close to this other power uh, that web people usually have and then in a later scene, they see evidence of that power having been used. I think that's not just as close as you're going to get to deduction, but deduction in a manner that plays to the strengths of, of role-playing. And uh, that sounds like a summary to me. It does.
1: Aha! Aha! When we have a summary, that means that the segment is
0: over. I deduce that we go to a commercial and then another segment. "'Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city.'" Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival.
1: Backstab your way to power and influence.
0: In Swords of the Serpentine. The
1: gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery, ...for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the
0: chance to live another day... ...on the winding streets of Eversink. That Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. Once more,
1: we walk up through the crisp winter air towards the pillared Gothic exterior, past the statue of George Washington, gazing disdainfully at the surroundings, up the steps, and into the Culture Hut. You thought I was going to say the National Gallery. Yeah,
0: I think I know which Culture Hut we're going into.
1: Right. The Culture Hut is specifically the Culture Hut that is the National Gallery in London, where Robin and I went on the Monday after Dragon Meat, as is often our way, to get ourselves a little uh, culturing up, and uh, this year, the National Gallery was holding two fairly complete retrospectives, uh, one, I think, a little more complete than the other, by two seminal painters who are, for whatever reason, maybe not driving the culture right now, but certainly did at the time. So we saw realists in a age that was becoming less realist, Lucian Freud and Winslow Homer, so I did not know a ton about Lucian Freud when we walked in. I'm the Winslow Homer, I think, in this team. Robin, so tell us about Lucian Freud.
0: Why did Why did we want to see this? So uh, I think, first of all, to try and frame this into something that remotely matches the remit of this show, these <laughs> are both examples of artists who, uh, you know, if you look up Lucian Freud paranormal, Lucian Freud ghosts, Winslow Homer, UFOs, you don't get anything. These are straight up exponents of different mainstream styles of art and there's very little that is nerd tropy about them but if you are gming and especially if you are creating gaming products i think it is always good to have a broader range of cultural references to draw on and so it is good to just as it's good to read literary fiction in order to write sf and fantasy in order to understand those styles and characterization and how they work it's good for example if you're ever doing art directing but you will wind up doing at some point, in some sense, as a a game writer at some point. It's to know the different reference points. So, uh, Lucian Freud, I can sort of sneak into one of the things that we refer to on the show, though, because he was born in 1922, his art career begins post-war, and he lived until 2011. His specialty is figurative paintings, specifically the painting of people, of the faces, and even more so later as he achieves his full style of the body, uh, sometimes the clothed body, often the naked body. Sometimes the naked body juxtaposed with a a clothed body, and th- there are some of the paintings that are about more intimacy than eroticism per se. But also, just about his work is about the body and what actual bodies are and what they're made of and how they reflect light and and what the textures of flesh are, and they're quite sort of confrontational in that way because we are used to even, you know, even naked people in paintings are typically adorned in at least our ideas of uh, what is erotic or sexy. And this is just sort of being, you know, confronted uh, with the nature of the flesh and of his skill and using paint to render that. Early on, though, there's the influence of surrealism on his work. So his very first paintings in the post-war period have a bit of the loneliness of De Chirico in them. They have sort of the deadpan A nature of Magritte, and they have sort of odd, uh, inscrutable symbolism. There's a bit of inscrutability to symbolism later on as he becomes more realistic, but you're still saying, why are these two characters posed in this way? Or, you know, what is this very pensive looking figure thinking? Because his uh, people are often sort of lost in thought and uh, sometimes appear to be sort of sunk in melancholy. So you you can, if you want, you know, do a post-war addendum to Dreamhounds of paris where little bits of the surrealist style are still manifesting other places in this case other would be london and uh before they're slowly being kind of washed away into an art mainstream that no longer allows you to interfere with the dreamlands but that's a bit of a stretch i'm not sure that would actually ever come up in anybody's game
1: yeah the emphasis on the physical appearance the nature of flesh very strongly reminded me of Ivan Albright, who I have previously, you know, he he sort of appends the Chicago surrealist scene, so that's another bare way in. I think that you could posit a Lucian Freud-style painter, I think, is more like a Richard Upton Pickman, because in an era of increasing abstraction, he stuck to the figurative. He painted what he saw. And, you know, the representational, almost in in many ways. And so that quality of an artist who is very much out of step with the art mainstream and is still so good, you can't ignore them. And in fact, you know, he got to paint Queen Elizabeth right in, in 2000. So he was far from you know a, a a side character in in British art he was just by sheer force of talent remained right. a, a a main character and, and that also
0: goes to the British resistance to modernism yeah. even long after modernism had fully established itself right they they don't really start to do duchamp until the 90s
1: mm mm-hmm. and, and not the 1890s yeah so he's also the grandson for people who are wondering of sigmund freud who you know comes in for his share of brickbats around the show but Although he, I think, you know, had nothing against his grandfather, was resolved not to become a painter of the subconscious or the unconscious, uh, because he didn't want to be in his grandfather's shadow. He wanted to think about things in his own way. And so, again, you have a, a cousinly relationship at best to the things in our hut. Right.
0: And, and his family fled the, uh, the, the Nazis and they were emigres. And so he was also very conscious about resisting any comparison to uh, German art, Mm -hmm. even when that comparison was sometimes apt. Uh, Now, Winslow Homer is also sort of an outsider figure in a way, in that he started as a commercial illustrator, has a strong storytelling element, and represents a style of painting that later art historians, driven also by art dealers, kind of wrote out of the progression of art history, but is nonetheless... Very important artist, in terms of his impact on uh, America and the portrayal of it, and the fact that his very highly narrative, dramatically charged uh, paintings are still very powerful today and also are something that you can use as reference uh, for role playing especially nineteenth century in a way that you you know can't use a lot of abstract or later art. So can tell us a bit more about Winslow Homer and his life. Homer
1: is, uh, as you say, begins as a commercial artist. He basically, he, his first main artistic experience is illustrating the civil war for newspapers. And from those illustrations come some of his very early paintings that sort of sets him on a people in tough circumstances as his sort of larger motif, his larger, you know, subject matter. That includes, uh, interestingly for the time, African Americans. He begins sort of painting little stereotyped black folks into some of his Civil War scenes. And then as he gets to know more about them, and especially after a tour of post-war Virginia, he paints them like any other subject of a naturalistic painter which probably caused a bit of a a stir at the time. He was a a New Englander, basically, born and bred, and then he moves to Maine once he becomes famous, builds himself a a big painting house, on some remote spit of land in Maine and plays up the image of a recluse while traveling around the world, especially when it gets cold in Maine. If this reminds you of another New England figure, you're not necessarily wrong to draw that comparison. So, as you suggest, a a Winslow Homer canvas is more likely to be the the description of the landscape around your Trail of Cthulhu adventure because it's painting folks on the seacoast and folks dealing with the you know, fury of the storm or the sort of the rocks and and driftwood left behind after the the big hurricane you know folks getting ready to go out into the hurricane and rescue people he spent some time in the coast of northumberland up in england hung out with the sail rescue people there very much was always uh, aware of, of people on the on the ocean and and how they lived and how they worked there's a number of evocative paintings both of the happy stuff uh the breezing up is I've argued maybe the the painting that most captures the american soul it's three boys and a man just out screwing around in a boat and the wind is coming up and it's a nice day and they're letting the kid drive because why not and it's a, a big beautiful canvas I've I've seen it in Washington DC and it was lovely to come to London and see it and then the gulf stream is sort of the inverse of breezing up in that it's a African American man, well, or African Caribbean. I, I don't know where he's supposed to be from, but he's lying in a boat that is dismantled and wrecked. There's sugar cane on the on the bottom of the boat, which implies we're somewhere in the Caribbean. The sharks are circling below him, and way off on the distance, there's a ship that doesn't care about him and will probably just find his bloody boat after the sharks take him out. And that's a monumental canvas. And is uh, you know it's one of those stories of of a man in crisis that becomes sort of a, a Winslow Homer undertone, right?
0: Yeah, if you are a uh, illustrator for role playing games or a perspective one, the reason to look at Homer and I guess even Freud is the uh, the storytelling in the images, uh, because often uh, what I notice from work from early career illustrators in our field is that the the technique is there and the composition and and reference to uh, bodies or whatever else is being illustrated. But there's often a feeling that is not there yet. And the idea of conveying strong emotion through art is the thing that is going to put your piece over. And so you can see, particularly in Homer, the way that he uses figures and composition to convey a narrative that really adds a layer of feeling to something that is technically brilliant. And sometimes that the explanation for why something is moving, you have to rely on a little textual clue like the title. For example, there's a painting called Veteran in a New Field, which is a farmer with a scythe seen from the back and uh, sort of facing the, uh, this wheat field. But it's only because you know Veteran in a New Field, you know that it's a people are getting back to work and back to ordinary life and back to the business of production after the Civil War that the figure becomes understandable to you and you realize just how moving that image is and how much you draw from it uh, from a very otherwise simple image that you might pass over as just a basic sort of uh, what was called a genre painting, which at that time meant an image of everyday life. And so I guess that is the the ultimate way to point to these, is that Freud as well uh, shows not only a mastery of the form but a depth of emotion and feeling and of, of suppressed feeling Uh, in his work. And you always look at those images of people and have an emotion connected to them. So that even if you are asked to draw a dwarf with a battle axe or a uh, mutant being interrogated in an interrogation room or uh, someone, you know, climbing down a set of moldy stairs, the thing that you also should be thinking of as, as an artist is what is the feeling that this conveys rather than just here's a literal image.
1: Yeah, there should be at least a possibility for an interiority to anything, you know, that you expect someone to connect to on any level other than purely illustrative. So, it's very, you know, art appreciation 101 to say what does this painting make you feel? But that's why it's 101. <laughs> right.
0: And then the 301 is how did that artist make you feel that way? Right. Uh, and now that I've I finally managed to turn this into a practical level Bit of advice for somebody in the role playing field. I think it's time for us to uh, head on over to what longtime listeners will suspect is the traditional last two post dragon meat segments. The Best of Ask the is now available at
1: DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and six guns role playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather, Varmint, in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Asphageln on Drive Through. Rescue this podcast from ocean danger by joining such contemporary backers as
0: Dare Barefoot,
1: Thomas Edward, James
0: Tatum, Rich Spainauer, and Chris McLaren. Yes, indeed. Uh, we are back from Dragon Meat. And uh, last year, Ken, you hoped to be able to go, but the Omicron wave uh, stomped on those plans. Uh, this was my first time ever at any convention since the beginning of the pandemic. And you, of course, celebrated by taking advantage of the uh, recently reasonable exchange rates to enhance your London book raid. And that, of course, comprises Foils and Treadwells, the occult bookshop, Uh, And they're sort of in a similar neighborhood. You broke it up over a couple of days to increase your carrying capacity. So we have a lot to get to. So without further ado, let's start with The Ark Before Noah, decoding the story of the flood by Irving Finkel.
1: Yeah, Irving Finkel is the Assyriologist at the British Museum, sort of their public-facing expert on cuneiform. And this is his recension of an old tablet from the one of the Assyrian redactions of the story of Gilgamesh this one is not about Zeusudra or Utnapishtim but the third flood hero of Mesopotamian uh, lore Atrahasis and uh, Atrahasis is a legendary uh, king of Shuruppak uh, from the Sumerian king list so by the time they're writing his adventures down they are picking a grand name from prehistory and telling stories about him in a, a, a more religious and, and ritual context than Conan the Barbarian, but not unlike that. And so the, uh, Atrahasis, you know, he hears that the gods are going to wipe out, uh, humanity because there's too many of them. He gets the tip off and he builds an ark. And his ark, unlike Noah's ark, is round. And, uh, one of the things that Finkel does is he says, is this like a boat? that would have been familiar to uh, the Mesopotamians, to the, the scribe. And sure enough, round boats are what you would build in the uh, delta of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers and sail around on. And that, he suspects, makes the Atrahasis round arc the predecessor of the Gilgamesh-era square arc from whence you get the rectangular arc of Noah, Finkel does sort of get out over his skis a little bit and says maybe the rectangular boats of the Marsh Arabs also inspired Noah. And it's like, by the time they're writing down Noah, they are, they're on the Phoenician coast. They've seen regular boats. They don't need to be, you know, making up some other kind of boat. So, right.
0: so basically the boat changes as people's mental conception of a boat based on the right. boats they know changes.
1: Although the interesting thing that he does point out is that the cubic volume of the boat in all cases is very, very close to the same volume. And so the notion that it's not the shape of the boat that matters. It's the magic number of that goes into the boat. That's the important thing. That seems like a valuable insight. He talked, he says that this cuneiform tablet could uh, very reasonably be translated to talk about the animals going on two by two, which is a detail that people have missed in all the excitement and indicates that the biblical Noah story goes back. To much more securely Mesopotamian roots, that it's not one version of the same story, but it, that it is literally a remake, there's other parallels and then uh the the book has a lot of fascinating stuff about the you know the relationship of the ark to for example Assyrian kingship. He talks about Sennacherib making a big deal out of conquering a mountain that was supposedly one of the mountains that the ark uh, rested on and uh, the, the Assyrians, of course, picked a a different mountain than the Babylonians picked. The Babylonians picked that one mountain we can see right up there in the north, and then the Assyrians said, no, no, it's not the north of Babylon, it's the north of Assyria, and we've been on that mountain, and we've uh taken stuff off of it, and uh maybe I've even got some ark stuff, and that makes me special. And then, of course, the uh, Bible ark is Mount Ararat, which is far to the north of, of anywhere in Mesopotamia, especially north of those jerks in Assyria. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, a fun sort of geopolitical recension uh, going on. So it's basically...
0: Th- th- this book can, let me stop you, yeah. way too interesting for this segment. Right. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> let's, let's speed this up by moving on over to ancient Antioch from the Seleucid era to the Islamic Conquest. By Andrea U. de Giorgi.
1: yeah let's um let, let, let's go back to our, our regular bookshelf sorry I was i was excited it was an exciting is too exciting maybe someone fun.
0: asked for more about about the Ark, and we'll do a whole whole full segment. We'll do a
1: whole segment on Noah's Ark. Anyway, uh, Ancient Antioch is just what it says on the jar. It is a lengthy description of the archaeology around the city of Antioch in Syria, which was uh, built by the Seleucids to become their uh, western capital and remained a, you know, leading city of the Roman Empire all the way down to, as the subtitle says, Islamic Conquest. You know, there's a, a lot of discussion that the urbanized area of Antioch is bigger than we thought it was, that it contains more subsidies. And then there's a very little bit at the end that's, now that we've seen all this archaeology, what was Antioch like, which is, of course, what you and I and everyone else care about, but it's the absolute cutting edge, you know, most current excavations in Syria before the, you know, revolution against uh, Assad made it impossible to go out and dig around Antioch without hitting a landmine or a ISIS uh, brigade.
0: Well, uh, speaking of things that are infinitely diggable upable, Londinium, a biography, Roman London from its origins to the 5th century by Richard Hingley.
1: Yeah, this is Hingley playing off of, of course, uh, the great Peter Ackroyd book, London, a biography. This is just what we know about Roman era Londinium and. This, again, goes down to individual building reports, very cutting edge, all the way up to, I think, 2016 is the most recent excavation that it has in it. And if you want to talk about Roman London, this is the book with which to talk about Roman London. It's, again, you know, very much down in the dirt. It's an archaeology book first and a history book second. But, you know, I think as archaeologists... Uh, are perfectly legitimate in pointing out so often the historians go wandering away from what the actual bodies in the ground tell you that it's worth uh, taking a second look at.
0: Now we come to uh, I I guess sometimes there are periods in history that are better than others and sometimes there are periods in history where you decide to call the, the place you live devil land as in devil land England under siege 1588 to
1: 1688 by Claire Jackson. Now, in fairness, it was the Dutch that called it devil land, not the English. And it was the Dutch making a pun on England being the Angle land, the land of the angels. And they said, no, it is not that place. Uh, Holland is well-governed, rich, secure, smug. It's all the things that the devil land. Oh,
0: so devil land was their way of saying the hated
1: British. The hated British. Exactly. And, uh, from 1588 to 1688, one could argue as Claire Jackson does that Britain was basically a failed state going from disaster to disaster with a brief stop for slightly less disaster. And, uh, I think that's a little unkind to Charles II, but, he was indisputably not running Europe, uh, when he was a uh, king. He was in fact knuckling under the, to the French an awful lot and being thumped by the Dutch while we're bringing the Dutch back into this. So I feel like it's an interesting corrective to our Elizabethan Whig notion that, you know, once Queen Elizabeth takes over, good Queen Bess, they, they've settled all their problems and, uh, England, uh, rules the waves thereafter. And this is a sort of, well, the England goes up and down. Uh, the, the hated British become bad at uh, running their own countries in between running other people's countries, and it's a useful corrective and a, a good fun history.
0: Constant delights, rakes, rogues, and scandal in Restoration England is by Graham Hopkins.
1: Restoration, of course, is Charles II era, and this is a book that. Every now and again, Robin, I'll see a book and I think, boy, I could have used this book in a campaign that I've already run and will never go back to.
0: That is so annoying. There's a new biography of McGreet, for goodness sakes. So. Yeah,
1: it's just never, it never stops, Robin. So, uh, this, I, I ran a Unknown Armies game set in 1666 with a lot of scandal and, and bad behaved aristocrats. This is more of that. So, if you have a rooting interest in the Earl of Rochester, this is the book for you. It's basically you know, bad behavior at the court of Charles II and in the London around Charles II, it's less the sort of, you know, gritty underworld sort of story and more the, you know, people who aristocratic diarists will mention as being bad. And that's a a good mind to
0: sift. Continuing to move through history. We arrive at stopping Napoleon war and intrigue in the Mediterranean by Tom Pocock.
1: Yeah, this is basically a very straightforward um, it attempts to combine diplomatic and military history, specifically naval history. It talks about the campaign against Napoleon from you know Aboukir Bay, where they settle his hash in Egypt, through Trafalgar, and then into the Mediterranean at the end of his uh, empire, when the British are conspiring with the disgusting and contemptible Bourbon kings of Sicily in order just to keep Napoleon out of the harbors of of Sicily and and Naples. And it's it, it's full of one assumes good, meeting naval history. Tom Pocock uh, wrote a biography, probably the best biography for uh, first timers of uh, old friend of the show, Admiral Cochrane. So it's uh, he's a good source. It's a good fun period, and it is redolent with gameable incidents and options. As you know, for example, a look at the Hornblower novels uh, set in the Mediterranean will remind you.
0: Now we uh, sort of slide from the history hut into the uh, trade craft hut. With Stars and Spies, Intelligence Operations and the Entertainment Business by Christopher Andrew and Julius Green.
1: And Christopher Andrew is the author of The Secret World, the massive compendium history of espionage that we have dipped into once for the Tradecraft Hut, could probably dip into profitably several more times without stepping on our own toes. So, he is joined with uh, Julius Green, who is a history of the entertainment business, specifically the theatrical stage, but also films. And at some point, one assumes Christopher Andrew and Julius Green met each other at an academic bun fight or gentleman's club or something and realized that they both cared an awful lot about Christopher Marlowe, for example, for but for an entirely different reasons. And suddenly, I, I assume a, a fast friendship was born and they said, we should write a book about that. And they did. And if there are two more gameable milieus than intelligence and theater, I'd like to see them. And here they are combined. It starts out, as I imply, with uh, Marlowe and runs all the way down to, you know, Hollywood being bankrolled by the CIA to make movies in Romania so that the CIA can, you know, infiltrate into some country. And I, you know, Argo is going to get a look in, obviously. It's, uh, it's just a whole story of covert action behind the floodlights. It, it's a great source for diving in any period from the 16th century to now. And it's a great look at at topics that don't often get uh, conflated.
0: So I'm going to ask then if this next one is also sort of an overview or if it's more confined in time. It's Disrupt and Deny, Spies, Special Forces, and the Secret Pursuit of British Foreign Policy by Rory Cormack.
1: Well, to answer your question, Disrupt and Deny begins, thank God, not with the SOE. Much as I love the SOE, I have shelves of books on it. Uh, This begins with the immediate post-war attempt to uh, roll back the communist uh, occupation of Eastern Europe, uh, famously undone by Kim Philby, who betrayed everyone involved to the uh, Soviets. So it begins with those sort of attempts at rollback, the the British inserting, you know, they thought that they could just flip the SOE and use it against the Soviets the way that they had against uh, Hitler. And it turns out there were many, many more communist spies in England, there were Nazi spies, so that didn't work out as well. But that's when it begins, and then it runs down to, obviously, the War on Terror. Uh There's a look in at the covert aspects of the war in Northern Ireland, but there's also Malaya, secret war in Indonesia, the not-at-all-secret war in Aden, Oman, next door, where you may remember the SAS was up to skullduggery and chicanery, overthrowing Mossadegh. So, you know, it's not the CIA's post-war record, for gosh sakes, but the British have ample examples of, of, of special, uh, paramilitary intelligence operations. And probably
0: less written on them as well. Yeah.
1: I, well, there's, there's a good amount written on each one of them, but I think there were fewer overviews. I saw this guy, Rory Cormack's name all over the shelves of the espionage section at FOILS and, I felt a great deal of retroactive pride when friend of the program and one of the great experts on Russian studies, Mark Gagliotti, went on social media after I posted my pictures and said, the only book in your hall I know is Disrupt and Deny, but it's excellent. So there we are.
0: Mark uh, knows his stuff. That's got to be true. And so uh, finally, we come to one uh, in this segment that uh, the advantage for me of your London book halls is I I get to pre-touch some of these books. And this one, I can attest, is utterly gorgeous and 100% game handoutable. It's Murder Maps, Crime Scenes Revisited, Phrenology to Fingerprint, 1811 to 1911 by Drew Gray.
1: Yeah, this is all the great 19th century murders you've heard of. So it's got the Ratcliffe Highway murder. It's got uh, Dr. Cream. It's got Jack the Ripper. It's got, you know, H.H. H. Holmes and a lot more. And it's got... The benders, the, the the Kansas family that murdered people who came to their, their inn. we covered them, yep. And it's not just got a, a map of the inn, but where all the bodies were found when they dug them up. And there's literal, here's where the body was in half of these cases. Where they can't do that, they can at least map the site. There's a floor plan of H.H. H. Holmes' murder castle in there. It takes its cartographic mission almost as seriously as it takes its true crime mission. And there's beautiful pictures. There's emphasis, as you can tell from the subtitle, on the technical criminology part of the investigation as well. Uh, It is, you know, if you're looking for three pages on any uh, 19th century murder, it's probably three beautifully illustrated pages here in Murder Maps. It is uh, one of those that I picked up as a gift for Sheila and realized as I was fondling it that this was going to be a less plausible oh, sweetheart, I got you this book <laughs> uh, argument than some of the others.
0: It, it, it can be for both of you. It can, exactly. Yeah, Gifts
1: can be for more than one person. I think we should all take that away in this time of Christmas giving and whatnot.
0: Exactly. If you give your friend a gift of bourbon, they might share it with you. That might happen. Could happen. Well, I think it's time for us to uh, take a little short break and then we'll be uh, we'll be right back with the other weirder half of your book haul. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held
1: by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality.
0: From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for harrowing infiltration.
1: ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts.
0: A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals new rituals, new tomes,
1: and the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF or in glistening hardback.
0: So we're back and we've got a a bit of a recurrence, a mythic recurrence, if you will, because uh, it's another Irving Finkel book to start this segment. This one's called The First Ghosts, Most Ancient of Legacies.
1: Yeah, this is straight up what did the ancient Mesopotamian cultures, Sumerians, Babylonians, Assyrians, uh believe about ghosts? What did they think about the dead coming back? Was that cool? Was that uncool? Was that messed up? Uh Hint, it's messed up. There is just a pretty much straightforward redaction of ghost belief in ancient Mesopotamia. Irving Finkel is a kind of a bubbly writer. He obviously can't help inserting himself to a degree into the uh, narrative, but it's more on the level of prose than in the, and then I found this carving type talk that mars so much popular nonfiction. So if you're looking for Mesopotamian ghostology, the book you want to start with now, it used to be you didn't have a book to start with, is the first ghosts. I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not as big a Finkel stan as a lot of people maybe are, but my God, the man knows his cuneiform.
0: Next, we come to Vampires. It's vampires with a Y, if you're typing it in. Genesis and Resurrection from Count Dracula to Vampirella by Christopher Frayling.
1: All right, this is the second edition of his earlier book, Vampires, which I also own. I've got it used at uh, Treadwells, but it's it, it definitely worth picking up. Uh, Frayling does a sort of generalized history of the of the myth, and then also sort of anthologizes some texts from the, uh, you know, great era of vampires. So there's little bits from, you know, both traveler's tales describing, you know, Oh, I, I heard about a vampire in Bulgaria down to straight up excerpts from, you know, Duma or, uh, Varney, the vampire, obviously you don't have all of Varney, the vampire and then little bits excerpts from other stories. So it's, it's a literary history of, of the figure, not a history of the myth. Per se, or the folkloric entity, and it relies more heavily on literary texts than on Frailing telling you what the literary text says, which is its own kind of advantage uh, frailing is a is a is a good journeyman uh, assembler of elliptony he's done other books they're they're also pretty good. Uh, this was a chance to get the update
0: Now we come to strange frequencies, the extraordinary story of the technological quest for the supernatural by Peter Berbergaul.
1: Yeah, this is basically a attempt to go back and look at the attempts to communicate with the dead, mostly Edison's necrophone, that kind of thing. This one is more of the, then I got to touch the electric battery and thought about the thing that I'd researched level. So it's less fun there, but it is a pretty good surface level guide to a bunch of fringe experimenters that are a little more fringe than the fringe experimenters that we normally talk about. So Edison gets a mention, but we're not really going to do a whole chapter on the necrophone. We're going to talk about some weirdo that this guy actually got to talk to or, or dig around in. So we're not going to talk about dive per se, but we're going to talk about some other lady who's got uh, Rowdive phenomena, uh, ghosts talking on her recordings. And, and so that's sort of the humanistic side, I guess, of this ridiculous uh, branch of technology.
0: Now, occasionally I get to contribute to the London Bookshelf by finding a book on the shelf before you do and handing it to you. And then I get to watch you Take it to the cash register. And among those titles this year was the premonitions Bureau, a true account of death foretold by Sam Knight.
1: Yeah, this, um, first of all, handsome tome. Second of all, it's a a story and reading about it. I thought we'd already done this, but we'd done the similar attempt to crowdsource dream interpretation. This was specifically a guy named, uh, John Barker in 1966, created the premonitions bureau where people sent in their premonitions of whatever and it, of course you you ask enough nuts to write you and they start writing you someone writes in and says i had a premonition that you john barker will die and so what happens next i don't know because i haven't read the story but I'll bet it was nothing good, because it was people involving themselves with crazy people.
0: And it happened in 1966, so uh, Fall of Delta Green source material potentially.
1: Eminently Fall of Delta Greenable.
0: Next on the list, we have Magical Britain, 650 Enchanted and Mystical Sites by Rob Wildwood. I got to thumb through this, and, and indeed, this is another one that's basically a uh, already a game supplement without stats in it.
1: Yeah, this is. Uh, I have a number of books like this that are maps of uh, some part of usually the island of Britain. And lots of dots and the dots are like, here are standing stones. Here is where you saw a ghost. Here's a ley line vortex, whatever. This guy, Rob Wildwood, went around and took cool, beautiful photographs of all of his spots. So it's more tour guide, I think, than it is a Liptony guide, but it's beautiful. And certainly, as you say, a game handout waiting to be handed out, every one of them. It also gives you a, if you don't have any of the other books that I do, it gives you a very quick and very attractive My gosh, the Fearful Symmetries players are going to Devon. I've looked at the Book of the New Jerusalem. There's some stuff. What else is in Devon? What else can I do? You turn to this book and you look up Devon and you've got lovely photos of a weird cave the Druids liked or a standing stone or a neat hill or whatever else. And that will uh, get you started Uh, populating it with uh, shoggoths and lizard folk and whatever else.
0: Now, here's a whole uh, subgenre of Elliptony, and that's coming up with ways to explain where King Arthur came from. We did it recently. Uh, We looked at one theory uh, not so long ago on the show. And uh, here's another one. We have The Secret Land, The Origins of Arthurian Legend, and The Grail Quest by Paul Broadhorse.
1: Yeah, this is a book. It's from a publishing company called Mythos Press, which seems to be another small press attempt to do popular elliptony, but there's a couple of things. First of all, not only are the margins on the back super narrow, always your, your guide, the margins on the inside are a little narrow. They've got the small type. They're actually trying to maximize the amount of uh, of text. That's a rookie mistake. I hope they don't go broke doing that. Lots of lovely uh, reproductions of medieval drawings of bears in the landscape. This book specifically believes that Arthur is almost the immanentization of a bear spirit that was expressed in the land in earthworks and ley lines and gosh knows what all, all coming, of course, from the great bear, the Ursa Majoris in the sky. And uh, the excitement of uh, seeing that thing to Neolithic man inspired them. To uh, magic up the landscape in such wise that when England needed her most, uh, they already had a guy named Arthur that they could, uh, or they already had a magic bear that they could turn into a legendary king to fight off the uh, future hated Saxons.
0: Well, Arthur starting out as a bear is an original idea. I mean,
1: it's it's original in in one way. It's not at all original in another. I mean, I'm uh, they're hardly the first people to note that Arctos sounds like Artos. And uh move from that point. But this is, is actually legitimately a lovely book. It has lots of cool stuff. And it is not the, for example, there was other books in that genre that I put back down that are the sort of, well, I was born in this tiny stretch of Hampshire. And we knew that Arthur ruled, oh, right there at the big house. And he's buried right over there at the big hill. And that is 90% of Where Was Arthur books. So Paul uh, Broadhurst saying Arthur was the magic bear we met along the lay, as it were, is a, a vast contribution to the field, even though I don't think that there's an original thought anywhere in it.
0: Still in the roughly the same territory, at least uh, uh, in an elusive level, we have Magic and Merlin's Realm, a history of occult politics in Britain by Francis Young.
1: And this is a little bit of a cheat in that it goes back to the actual uses of magic in britain so you know um uh, natural magic and astrology and this kind of thing druids curse tablets stuff like that and then it talks about the sort of occult nature of the kingship which is true but maybe not as politically relevant as francis young implies it is but he does you know makes a a useful fist of it and then we do legitimately have the Tudors who did in fact try to identify themselves with King Arthur and go so far as to find their own Merlin and John D. That's a legitimate call. And then as we start doing the decline of magic, we start having to say, well, you know, did a British prime minister attend a seance? That's the occult in politics. And in fairness, uh, Francis Young, I've done the same thing. No shame in that game. Player recognized player. It's a, it's a fine book for an overview I'm sure that I will be productively plumbing the index, but it's not quite what it says on the cover.
0: Well, let me reach over to the pile for So Potent Art, The Magic of Shakespeare by Emily Carding.
1: Yeah, this is a book that I'm a little bit frustrated at, not because it is nonsense, that is beneath me, but because this is from the good folks at Llewellyn, and I literally pitched this exact book to the good folks at Llewellyn and the commissioning editor who was interested... Left Llewellyn, so I never got to write it. So some of this is just a little sour grapes. I'm sure that Emily Carding is a wonderful person and she is a practitioner of magic with a, a degree in theater arts. So like you, that's me shown twice. So this is, this is good. I've, I've wanted to write this book. I've got other books that would go into this book. I could maybe write the 201 of this book, but it's the, you know, have you noticed that as a 16th century Englishman, Shakespeare thought a lot about magic and weird stuff? Yes, I have noticed that, Emily Carding, and thank you for assembling your research.
0: Yeah, I think it might be central to
1: several of the plots. Yeah, so this is not quite just an academic study therein, and it's not quite a, here's how you can do Shakespeare's magic, but being Llewellyn, it sort of floats between those two worlds, ghost-like. Again, good for Emily Carding to have found the commissioning editor who would stay on the job long enough to let her write it, so congratulations.
0: Still on the elliptonic Shakespeare uh, tip, we have Shakespeare and the Stars, The Hidden Astrological Keys to Understanding the World's Greatest Playwright by Priscilla Casello.
1: Yeah, and again, Shakespeare, 16th century Englishman, absolutely knew about astrology, probably believed in it at least as much as a kid on TikTok does today. And as someone who is familiar with, With the architecture of court masks, we know this because he and the Chamberlain's men started writing them, especially when they became king's men, he would have been familiar with astrological symbolism as used at court and as, you know, created basically by Renaissance artists. So, the notion that there is astrological symbolism bespangling Shakespeare's plays is completely legitimate. What is perhaps illegitimate is saying, oh, it's the only way to understand his plays. All of his plays are coded astrology. Uh get with the program or get bent. This is where I believe Priscilla Costello goes a bit off the rails. It seems but, like kind of her to tossing a bent like that. Right. But it is a, a big old book of you know what we can reasonably and maybe a little bit unreasonably impute as astrological content in Shakespeare. And again, it's part of the The great quest that I've been pursuing since Suppressed Transmission is to properly magic Shakespeare for the gaming table.
0: That finishes that item, but there's another one, and that's Born of Blood and Fire by Richard Ward.
1: This I actually got at Dragon Meat. There was a Troika, the the game, the fun game. That publisher had a booth. One of their, I believe, artists was banning it. And one of the things they were selling out of the corner of that booth was a bunch of occult books that I suspect the artist had got for reference and was trying to sell on. But this is a brand new thing from the Scarlet imprint. And I don't know any of my high magic, any of our high magic listeners would know these guys. They do versions of grimoires with very, very thoughtful and probably out on a limb prefaces to sort of situate them in history and in uh, the history of the art. And uh, then they go on to uh, make things up. But this is the origin and evolution and practices of the petwo rite of Haitian vodou, and this is one of the rites that has a historical beginning. It is it sort of blew up onto the scene during the Haitian Revolution in 1792. There is a belief that a actual practitioner named Don Pedro, uh, that might have been his magical name, it might have been his real name, sort of birthed this rite and sort of revealed it in the, in the in the way that Martin Luther, you know changed christianity by inventing lutheranism don petro much the same introduced the petro right saying well the old rights are well and good but we have a bunch of french people to kill and they're not getting us there and uh the petro right is sort of uh channeling the aggressive bloody kill all the hated french qualities of the spiritual into a new set of rights with which to approach all the law and uh and get voodoo done correctly so i'm you know Obviously, it's the, it's the more gameable of, of, of that uh, part of the religion. And a big history of the Petro, right, is, as far as I know, only been done by Richard Ward. So, who am I to suspect that it will probably err on the side of luridness in the way that many Scarlet imprint books do?
0: Now, here's the next one where uh, I picked it up, showed it to you, and said, Is this too basic for you, Ken? And you've responded by putting it in your pile, so it must not have been. Cursed Britain. A History of Witchcraft and Black Magic in Modern Times by Thomas Waters.
1: It is pretty basic. Uh, You were not wrong to suspect that it was basic, but you know what? Every now and again, you need a primer, you need a thing that's going to give you the uh, 30,000 foot view before you drill down. Uh, This just legitimately talks about, you know, how people have thought of witchcraft, the occult, magic, that kind of thing in Britain from 1800 to now. And very few deep dives, but lots and lots of you know, famous names and places and acts. This will begin your research. It will not end your research. But if uh, you don't really care to do that much research, maybe this does end your research. It's it's perfectly sound, as far as I can tell. It's, I think, from Yale University Press. So, I mean, I say this, uh, they, they wrote, did a terrible book on uh, supernatural Nazis. But the larger point is, it's more reputable than maybe some of the other books in my stack, and it is a pretty good intro, as Robin suspected.
0: And finally, we come to a Lester Crowley in England, The Return of the Great Beast by Tobias Churton. I've uh, read some Churton and uh, found it a little too interested in the mumbo-jumbo to my taste, but uh, it made it to your final entry, so there must be some reason to have picked it up.
1: Well, part of the reason to pick it up is I think I have all of the other books in this series. He has done a long multi-volume biography of Alistair Crowley as a excuse to talk about the magical scene in all the places Aleister Crowley was. So The Beast in Berlin, his book about Crowley's German visits in the 20s and 30s, also lets him bring in all the other crazy German ritual magic and uh, ceremonial magic groups that were around Crowley at the time. He has Alistair Crowley in India, Crowley in America, and now this is the sort of tail end of Crowley's life when he comes crawling back to England, a bitter heroin-crusted failure, and this is what happens then. It finishes out Churton's biography. As you say, Churton is maybe not the best or most trustworthy writer in any of this, and his prose is not going to win any awards, but he's out there doing the work, and for all of his sins, Tobias Churton has put more effort into appending Crowley into his setting than a lot of better writers have. So... Uh, I will forgive Churton his manifest flaws uh, in much the same way that I do not forgive Crowley's manifest flaws, but keep buying books about him.
0: Well, on that note, we have uh, gotten through the London Book Hall. So it was a, a delight, Ken, to be back in London, back with you, back at Dragon Meat. Dragon Meat, I guess we should very briefly uh, say, uh, was going great guns. Yeah. It was the busiest uh, version of that ever. There were more empty spaces on the Pelgrane Press booth table by the end of the day than I've ever seen before. The sales were off the chart and uh, the attendance was radically bigger, so much so that word is it's uh, moving on up to another bigger venue next year.
1: And that they're beginning to even hint that it may be more than one day. We'll see if that... Eventuates, but it certainly was one of the few dragon meets that i have not been able to wander around to every single table and touch all the interesting things or
0: say hello and spend more than a couple minutes with the people
1: we wanted to see right i mean normally dragon Meat, there's a, a about a half day where it feels like a a, a real uh selling con and the other half of the day it sort of feels like not that and this day much more of it was the actual booth work that they ostensibly bring us for.
0: So we uh, did a couple of panels, uh, one of which was Ken and Robin live Uh, as usual will be the final one. uh, We drop uh, this year as a sort of a Christmas present to ourselves and incidentally to you, but we'll have another uh, brand new spanking episode next week. So join us for that. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Pellegrine Press, gown Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music, as always, is by James simple Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at Patreon.com backslash Robin.
0: Aha, you say it's time to join such backers as Adam Grotjan, Lee Candolino, Luke Steyer, Arjen Poutsma, and Brian Malcolm. Wear this show, or drank it from a mug with. Ken Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com user slash Ken Robin. Check
1: out our latest horrific design. This could have been an email
0: on Twitter. He's at Kenneth height and he's at Robin D laws. See you next time. And once again, no, we will talk about stuff.